Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The following is a Podcast One and Reels Channel presentation. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. For over 20 years, the streets of Boston are controlled by one of the most vicious gangsters history has ever seen. He ran New England and Boston with his machine guns, his extortion, his money laundering. His rise to power includes stints as a petty thief and as a bank robber, earning him a stay in the infamous prison of Alcatraz. It's almost like a new special criminal status was conferred upon him when he went to Alcatraz. Upon release, he returns to a life of crime. He basically became the Irish godfather of South Boston. He ruled by fear. He ruled by charm. He was always one step ahead of everybody else. Despite his infamy, he is asked to become an informant for the FBI. The FBI had decided he's a good bad guy. We can use him for our purposes, so we're going to play ball with him. And his reign of terror continues without repercussions. What you need to understand about this story, it's about our government, law enforcement, local government, all being corrupted by a relationship formed between the FBI and James Whitey Bulger. That's stunning. When his protected status with the FBI finally ends, he goes on the lam and sets off an international manhunt that will last for close to two decades. He was on the FBI's most wanted list, second only to Osama bin Laden. How did he give authorities the slip time and again? And why are the public and the media still fascinated with his crimes? Bulger enjoyed killing people. He was a killer and he enjoyed it and he was cruel. Meet James Whitey Bulger, just a Boston hoodlum with a long rap sheet, until murder made him famous. The wildlife of Whitey Bulger inspired the Showtime series Brotherhood, about two Irish-American brothers on opposite sides of the law. Whitey Bulger worked for the Bureau as a prized informant, with what some agents say was carte blanche to commit any crime short of murder. Bulger's life was also chronicled in the book Black Mass, which was turned into a movie starring Johnny Depp. I think Whitey was probably not as much of a walking sociopath as he would appear on film. I think he was a lot more normal, for lack of a better word. That's what makes evil a little more scary. His personality influenced other film characters, namely Jack Nicholson's scene-stealing role in The Departed. Bulger also appeared 16 times on America's Most Wanted. In short, Whitey Bulger, his life, and his world are notorious. James Bulger grows up in a large Irish family in the projects of South Boston. The only thing you need to know is that in Southie, the neighborhood mascot is a leprechaun with his fist up. Unlike his younger brother, Billy, Whitey is a rough kid and is drawn into street life. You cross a neighborhood, you're an outsider. They brawl because it's about territory. In the 40s, there are a number of Irish street gangs throughout South Boston. Whitey is a member of the Shamrocks, and that's where he learns the art of stealing. Local police have frequent run-ins with Whitey, and they attempt to get information out of him. Hey, Whitey, what are you doing down here on the docks? Who are you working for? Nobody. I work for myself. Come on, you expect me to believe that? Screw you. I ain't no rat. 
By the time he was in his early teens, it was pretty clear that Whitey had decided he was going to be a criminal. In 1948, Whitey and his brother Billy were minding their own business. They encountered eight-year-old John Connolly. Give me the money! Hey, whoa! What do you think you're doing? It's not your business. Get Kid, you don't got to deal with people like him in this neighborhood. Hey, run along. Get out of here. John took a straighter path while Whitey went on to rob banks. This was a professional criminal, a professional bank robber who took a certain pride in the way he carried himself. In 1956, Bulger is caught and sentenced to 20 years in a federal prison in Atlanta. Federal time was tough back then. This was no club fed. He obviously hated it immediately. In prison, Whitey focuses on getting out early, so he volunteers for an experimental government program called MK Ultra. He wanted to shave off a certain number of months, and he'd be paid for 15 months of LSD experimentation. That meant once a week, he was injected with LSD. I see. Officially, the purpose of the LSD program was to find a cure for schizophrenia. But unofficially, this program, which was backed by the CIA, was allegedly used for mind control. (laughs) The effects of LSD at the time were just weren't known. Whitey had psychotic episodes, and he thought he was going insane. He had horrible nightmares for the rest of his life. If he wasn't a bitter guy before then, he was certainly a bitter guy after he realized what was done to him. In 1959, Bulger is caught helping inmates attempt an escape, now deemed a flight risk. Whitey Bulger is transferred to the notorious island of Alcatraz. In the world that Whitey occupied, being admitted to Alcatraz would be like being admitted to Harvard or Stanford. Now, Whitey Bulger finds himself living in the same cell block that once housed Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly. It's almost like a new special criminal status was conferred upon him when he went to Alcatraz. In the 1960s, while Whitey Bulger is locked away in prison, Events are unfolding that will pave the way for Whitey's rise to power. South Boston is in the throes of an Irish gang war. And over in the North End, the Italian mafia grows in size and power. While Whitey was in prison, the cops were really focused on the organized Italian mafia and not so much on the individual Irish street gangs. Also, while he was away, his brother, Billy, 
was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Billy became the spokesperson for the family. He was the, the student that did well. Representative Billy Bulger enlists his friends, including powerful politicians and priests, to write letters on his brother Whitey's behalf, urging the warden to grant him parole. Bill, I think, genuinely believes that Whitey was determined to go straight, to turn his life around when he got out. They thought that Whitey had a lot of potential. They were hoping he'd come back to Boston and get a job and, make, you know, live a good life. Whitey would not have been paroled without Bill's intervention, not even close. In 1965, Bulger is released from prison after serving only nine years of his 20-year sentence. He got a job working construction, and his brother, Billy, would check on him from time to time. I know construction isn't what you want to do, but give it time. Maybe I can help you get a job. A legislator's aid or something. <laughs> I don't think there's enough room in this family for two politicians. It's also after his release that Whitey meets 21-year-old waitress Lindsay Sear. Take it easy, Jeff. Baby, you know this is the only chance. Okay. I'll say it myself. Please, I told you That's enough. Lindsay was a uh, very beautiful woman when they first met. Whitey intervenes to protect Lindsay from her former boyfriend, and she is immediately smitten. What do you say we take this conversation outside? And she was immediately drawn by him. And uh, she ultimately became his girlfriend, fell in love with him. Pretty quickly, the two have a son named Douglas. Whitey did love his son. Whitey's love for his son cannot keep him from a life of crime. In the late 1960s, Bulger leaves legitimate jobs for good and starts working for an Irish gang run by the Killeen brothers. Bulger is one of Killeen's top enforcers, which means he's a bookie, he's a loan shark, and he's an all-around thug. One part of the job description is to kill anybody that your group deemed was too much of a threat. The leg breakers the knuckle breakers, the, and the guys that shoot people in the head. So the Irish gang that Whitey worked for had an ongoing feud with the Mullins gang. And one day, Whitey found an opportunity to take one of their members out. Whitey was driving down the street in, in South Boston and saw what he, he thought was Paulie McGonigal, the titular head of the Mullins gang at the time. Bulger reaches for his gun and yells out the driver's name. Hey, Paulie! As soon as he fired the gun, he realized it wasn't Paulie. Whitey Bulger has just killed the wrong man. But the body count is only beginning. In a brazen act of violence, Boston gangster Whitey Bulger shoots someone he believes to be a rival gang member, only to discover he's made a fatal mistake. As soon as he fired the gun, 
he realized it wasn't Paulie, it was his brother Donnie. And Paulie's brother Donnie wasn't even a gang member. He was a civilian. In a panic, Whitey confesses the murder to his friend, mobster Billy O'Sullivan. It was the wrong guy, Billy. I shot the wrong guy. It wasn't Paulie McGonagall at all. Well, who was it? It was Donnie. You mean to tell me you just shot Paulie's brother, Donnie McGonagall? Killing the wrong person in Whitey's world was, you know, part of doing business. Don't worry about it, Whitey. Donnie wasn't healthy. He smoked, you know. He probably would have gotten lung cancer anyway. They'd make sure they'd try to get the right guy the next time. They like a pork chop. Whitey has killed the wrong man and inflamed the Irish gang war. He attempts to defuse the situation by meeting with the leader of a rival gang and suggesting a truce. The biggest non-mafia gang in Boston at the time is called the Winter Hill Gang. So Whitey convinces Howie Winter, who's the head of the Winter Hill Gang, that he can stop the war if everybody would work together. Basically, if they could stop killing each other, the cops would stop paying attention to them and then they could make more money. Howie Winter and Whitey Bulger call a meeting with the heads of rival Irish gangs. Whitey was able to basically bring these groups together. It was like the Versailles of wise guys in South Boston. We need to talk about a truce to end the gang war. This is what I propose. Why not make some money instead of fighting each other? Whitey was able to convince everybody that they all could, you know, make money, we got to stop killing each other, we have to have clear delineations of power and responsibility, and Howie thinks this is great because now Winter Hill's going to get more money than they ever thought coming out of Salty. After all the gang leaders shook hands, Howie Winter appointed Whitey as the leader. You know, Whitey cut that deal, and he came out of it better than anybody in Salty. He basically became the Irish godfather of South Boston. Whitey Bulger now has all of South Boston under his thumb. Around the same time, Bulger's six-year-old son is hospitalized after suffering a severe reaction to aspirin that his mother, Lindsay, had given him to combat a fever. She believed to bring that fever down, as most parents do, you give them aspirin. But he just didn't get better. He didn't get better. Even though Whitey Bulger was one of the most powerful criminals in South Boston, he was powerless to help his son, who died in just a few days. The cause of death is Rye's syndrome, a rare disease that affects children. The tragedy takes its toll on Bulger and Lindsay's relationship, which will eventually end after a 12-year span. Whitey has nothing left except criminal ambition. He had a reputation out there for being a very dangerous individual that didn't hesitate to kill somebody if they needed it, and he controlled a lot of the rackets in the Boston area. As the years go by, Whitey Bulger's fierce reputation grows and is felt throughout all of New England. He ran New England and Boston with his machine guns, his extortion, his money laundering. Whitey conducts his business out of a bar called Triple O's in South Boston. Triple O's was a selfie bar, and it was Whitey's office. Really kind of dark and dingy in your typical Irish pub. The shades were drawn, and it was almost like a, a horror movie setting. But it's where gangsters hung out. Whitey Bulger has three very close associates who are all part of his inner circle. 
Stevie the Rifleman Fleming was a character. He was Whitey's partner in crime. Steve Flemmy wasn't part of a gang. He was loyal to nobody but himself. You didn't want to mess with Stevie. Um, he'd, he'd kill you in a heartbeat. John Moderano was one of the most cold-blooded hitmen I have ever seen. A psychopath. He could be very charming, but you got to understand, he has the moral conscience of a beetle. Last, there was Kevin Weeks. He was the youngest of the bunch, but he was a fierce fighter. He was a bouncer at the bar where Whitey and the other criminals from the Queens faction used to hang out. Kevin was capable with his fists if somebody needed to take a little bit of beating. Whitey looked at Kevin, especially his fighting ability. He identified, that's what I was like when I was young. In the 1970s, Bulger controls all of South Boston, but the Italian mafia is shaking down his neighborhood. Bulger and his partner, Steve Flemmy, they work for the mob, they do hits for the mob, they're also rivals of the mob. Think of them as independent operators. The mafia is outsourcing because the mafia had a problem. They were short on killers. So they started outsourcing the jobs. The mafia is bigger and more powerful. And Whitey is sick of losing money to them. And then someone shows up. The little boy he once defended in an alleyway. John Connolly, now an FBI agent, meets with Bulger on September 18, 1975, in an attempt to make Whitey an informant. Where did you come from? Can't have anybody see me with you. An Irish punk from the projects. Listen, Jimmy. I just need you to hear me out. The Italians are ratting on you. They want to send all of you to the can one by one. Why not use the same tactic? You take down a mafia family, you'd be the top of the East Coast. John Conley and his overture to, to Whitey is that the Italians are trying to take you out. You can't survive without friends and law enforcement. No, Jimmy, you can't. All right. Deal me in. Whitey agrees to become an informant as long as his congressman brother is never told. The A's on, not a damn rat. You got that? Yeah, I got it. So Bulger sees a way to climb the ranks, along with his partner Fleming, and to essentially take over from the Italians by helping... The feds. This is a win-win. The FBI can take out America's biggest threat, and Whitey also can become more powerful because all of his enemies will be gone. Basically, Conley's pitch to Whitey was, you work with us, we'll take them out, and you can do whatever you want. Knowing there will be no recourse from the FBI, Bulger starts to act as if he has a license to kill. He begins to take out all of his old enemies starting with friend and longtime rival Tommy King. Rumor has it King's been talking too much and putting the organization at risk. Hey, give me that cap. Whitey Bulger is a very dangerous individual uh, with a total disregard for anybody's uh, life. Take yourself a little nap. 
<laughs> he was a person that enjoyed killing. Didn't do it out of what he thought was necessity. He enjoyed it. Very sick individual. Whitey Bulger's bloodlust has thus far been limited to gangsters, but it will soon grow to include innocent people. Murder Made Me Famous will be back after a word from our sponsors. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. Whitey Bulger has become an informant for the FBI. He gives the feds info on his enemies in the Italian mafia. In exchange, the FBI turns a relative blind eye to Whitey's crimes. And his reign as the godfather of Boston's Irish gangs continues. In 1981, Bulger's Winter Hill Gang receives a compelling and lucrative proposal from John Callahan, a local businessman with ties to organized crime. So listen, I'm talking about the deal of a lifetime. All right, Haile could be the most lucrative betting sport this country's ever seen. But Roger Wheeler's being unreasonable. All right, he won't sell. This business executive, John Callahan, is allegedly skimming off the top of World Highlight. World Highlight is a Basque game. It's similar to lacrosse. People bet a lot of money on Highlight. A businessman from Tulsa, Oklahoma, named Roger Wheeler, buys the company and starts auditing the finances. Roger Wheeler was not corrupt at all. He's the type of guy that would go to the golf course and run business straight and narrow. Callahan's motivation for wanting to have Wheeler killed is that he doesn't want to be caught skimming from the business. He won't sell. I think his widow would sell it to me, though. (laughs) Here's what I propose. The Winter Hill Gang takes out Roger Wheeler. That's where Whitey Bulger and his team of hitmen come in. So they cased the area a little bit, and they went to this nice golf club, and John just gets out, goes over to the driver's side window. Hey, Wheeler, that's up. It was an audacious murder, and it was the first time that Whitey Bulger had reached beyond the gang world. There was always a hierarchy of victims when it came to law enforcement. If it was a gangster who got killed, eh, we catch him, great, fine. Otherwise, spring cleaning. Roger Wheeler was dangerous because he was a legitimate businessman. Wheeler's murder exposed Whitey to a higher level of scrutiny and jeopardy. But as long as Whitey Bulger kept giving information to the FBI, he could do no wrong. Soon, Bulger begins dating Teresa Stanley, a mother of four. With Teresa, he got almost a surrogate family because she had kids. It was like father knows best. He would sit around and tell the kids, you need to do this in school, you need to get a job, you need to save money. And he was offering very paternal, practical advice to her kids. He could make you laugh. And, the, and his eyes could be, you know, blue, a charming, but they could also turn ice blue and cold. And then he would retire, not to Teresa's house, but with Kathy Gregg. Unbeknownst to Teresa, Whitey is secretly seeing another woman, Catherine Gregg, on the side. Catherine Gregg is a tall, blonde dental hygienist who's 22 years younger than Whitey Bulger. She knows all about Teresa, but Teresa doesn't know about her. Hi, 
the women. Women absolutely loved Whitey. They just fell in love with Whitey and his charm. And it wasn't fear. They loved him. Bulger's charm extends to his friends at the FBI, to whom he delivers a surprise. You didn't have to do that. That's some good vino, right, John? There's something else in there for you. The envelope is full of cash. Thanks, Jimmy. He was a very weak individual. Sharp. A snake. But weak in many ways. So he takes the money. And he knows it's coming from Bulger. Let's have a drink! (laughs) Once you've taken bribes and um, you've accepted bribes, he's running the show at that point. John Connolly was a bit showy. He liked um, his, his nice dinners. He liked to be the man about town in Boston, and he had a boat, and he liked, he liked that lifestyle, the showy lifestyle. He was an acclaimed hero with a war and organized crime. Isn't that ironic? You know, the way I see it, we're all good guys. How do you figure? Well, you're the good, good guys. I'm the bad good guy. <laughs> According to Bulger, in exchange for the information he provides, the FBI pledges loyalty to him and implies that he'll receive immunity from any repercussions. I like the sound of that. I shake on that one. (laughs) The rules, uh, the informant provides the information to you so you can develop cases. But he was providing some information on some of his competition out there. So it was almost like he was using the FBI as an arm of his organization. What's the point of all of it? I think it's power. Acting on intelligence that Whitey has provided, the FBI soon bugged the headquarters of the Italian mafia. Whitey really had the FBI in its back pocket. He could throw tips to John Connolly, which he did. The Italian mafia in Boston occasionally hires freelance hitmen even if they're part of rival Irish gangs. Whitey Bulger and Stephen Flemmy are two contractors that Mafia underboss Gennaro Angiulo feels he can trust. But he couldn't be more wrong. We need to get some new friends. Whitey's a friend. He's got all South Boston there in his pocket. Probably pulling 50 grand a week from bookmakers. Yeah, but what are they willing to do? If we call them right now... They kill whoever we ask them to. The brilliant mafia guys never figure out they're being done in by these two guys. They think they're swell guys. With incriminating evidence caught on tape, the FBI is able to sweep in and arrest Angiulo and his mafia associates. As a result of Whitey's tips, he took the mob guys down, and therefore he was able to rule New England. They're triumphant because they're putting the mafia away, and they're all getting bonuses. They're all getting commendations. And what we know now is they're fighting a dirty war. It's a bright, shining lie that they've been winning the war on organized crime. 
Having taken out his biggest enemies in the Italian mafia, the Irish Whitey is anxious to protect his expanding empire. He closely examines everyone who may threaten him and turns his eyes to Deborah Davis, who is having an affair with a married Stephen Fleming. Her biggest mistake was going out with the gangster Stevie the Rifleman Fleming. Debbie Davis was a beautiful girl. I mean, she was a Farrah Fawcett-looking type girl, if you saw her picture. She was young. She was beautiful. She was roped in by the money and the gifts. But it was one of those tumultuous relationships. Deborah Davis is trying to break things off with Whitey's right-hand man. And she knows that Whitey is an FBI informant after being told so by Flemmy. Bulger felt that she was a threat to their relationship and that she knew too much. Anybody who knew too much about their organization, you're dead, you're gone. Bulger and Flemmy see Davis as a threat, and her days are numbered. In 1981, Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy lures his 26-year-old girlfriend, Deborah Davis, to an empty house at the direction of his boss, Whitey Bulger. It's all right, come on. They were so cold-hearted. In order to run that criminal enterprise for 30 years, they had to knock off potential witnesses, anybody who they thought could potentially be a rat. They didn't trust anybody but themselves. Deborah is lured to the house under the guise that Flemmy is buying it for his parents. Stevie! Law enforcement will never be able to prove whether Deborah Davis was killed by Whitey Bulger or Stephen Flemmy. Whitey had this, you know, incredible insulation in which he had other people do his dirty work, except when it came to killing people, which he often relished doing himself. It's done. Once Deborah Davis is dead, her teeth are pulled out. You could identify a body through dental records, and so they would pull the teeth, and Stevie would use his big pliers... When these individuals didn't hesitate to go out and kill women like that, it just goes to show their mentality at the time. Deborah's body is then buried along the banks of a nearby river. You're going to a better place. Deborah Davis is the first woman who Bulger and Flemmy kill, but she won't be the last. Throughout the 1980s, Bulger indiscriminately terrorizes the communities of South Boston. His victims range from drug dealers to honest businessmen. Yeah, Stephen, it's uh, come to my attention your store is doing quite well. You must be very proud of yourself. Yeah, we're doing all right. Huh. All right. Stephen, I'm going to make you an offer. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm going to buy your store. Whitey, my wife and I, we spent years... Uh, slaving away to buy this place, you know? It's the key to our retirement. Well, now it's the key to our retirement. You have to pay tribute to the Winter Hill Gang just to be able to do business in New England. And if he asks you to cough up $1,000, $2,000 per month or more, or get part of the take, you you had to do it. If you failed to pay... 
You could get beaten up, sent to the hospital, or possibly murdered. You know, Stephen, it'd be a real shame, this uh, little girl, this beautiful, sweet young lady here were to grow up without a father. You know, you need to be around. Let me help you with that. Predators are often very intelligent, that they have these, they can pick up vulnerabilities, they can sense things in people. He kind of knew where to scratch people. Yeah. All of this is going on under the watchful eye of John Connolly, Whitey Bulger's FBI handler. Whenever I would ask John about Whitey and Stevie, John's response was, they're semi-retired. They're kind of out of the picture. Yeah, they were stone-cold killers, they were bad, but they're not doing that anymore, which we all know is bogus. In 1982, a former Bulger associate named Brian Holloran approaches the FBI with a deal. He will reveal the killers behind the Wheeler murder in exchange for protection. John Connolly leaked that information to Whitey Bulger. As a result, this triggers Whitey to clean up all the loose ends, starting with the informant, Brian Holloran. Whitey, in disguise, shoots Holloran outside of a local restaurant. Whitey's bullets hit an innocent bystander, a father of three named John Donahue, who is out having a pint with his friend, Brian Holloran. Next on Whitey's list is John Callahan, the very person who asked Bulger to kill Oklahoma businessman Roger Wheeler. They wanted to make sure that nobody ratted anybody out. These guys had to be killed. Dead. He's tying up the loose ends, right? Taking out anybody who knows anything about him including Flemmy's 26-year-old stepdaughter, Deborah Husky. Even though he is her stepfather, Flemmy has been secretly carrying on a sexual relationship with Husky. Deborah Husky was Flemmy's stepdaughter. He was concerned, too, that she was getting a little bit out of control. Whitey didn't like Debbie Hussey because she was involved in drugs, and anybody involved in drugs, heavy alcohol use, could spill could say the wrong thing at the wrong time, so they had to control Debbie Hussey. She had to be killed. <laughs> Flemmy raised her, but business comes before family. So even though he raised Debbie Hussey since she was two years old, if she had to be killed, she had to be killed. Loose lips sink ships. That's the way they felt. Whitey Bulger is responsible for killing gangsters and innocent bystanders. The wide variety of his murders make Bulger a high-profile suspect. Now there are other law enforcement agencies on his tail. And they're conducting their own investigations. Tom Foley is a stand-up guy. He worked tirelessly to try to crack the Whitey Bulger investigation on the state police level. We were the state police organized crime unit. um, That if we didn't go out and investigate organized crime, then we were part of the problem. And the last thing 
I wanted to be as part of that problem. He gathered information, but every time he was this close to catching Whitey or the Winter Hill Gang, his investigations would be compromised. We realized that it was more than just Bulger that we were dealing with, that there was a lot of corruption going on in the Boston area as a result of Bulger's relationship with law enforcement. This relationship, however, is coming to a close. Following an indictment of 21 mafiosos, FBI agent John Connolly decides the time is right to retire in 1990. You've made South Boston proud, Connolly. But where will this leave Connolly's informant, Whitey Bulger? Will he continue to have the luck of the Irish, or will his luck finally run out? James Whitey Bulger has ruled the streets of Boston for years through intimidation and violence. And in the early 1990s, he finds a new way to extort money. In 1991, the winning lottery ticket for a $14.3 million jackpot is purchased by Michael Linsky at a liquor store, one that's owned by Whitey Bulger. This guy from Southie won the lottery, and uh, before he cashed in his ticket, Whitey heard about it. Whitey allegedly pays Linsky a visit. Afterwards... Linsky will claim that he wasn't the sole buyer of the ticket. He states that he bought the ticket with three other people, including Whitey Bulger. Bulger's take is rumored to be over $89,000 a year. Really? N nobody bought that? Come on. Winning the lottery was just one of Whitey Bulger's extortion themes. It was just another sign of how he loomed over Boston. But Whitey's shadow begins to fade when his friend and FBI handler John Connolly retires. Whitey no longer has someone in the government covering for him. With no one to hamper their investigation, state police, the DEA, and federal prosecutors attempt to collect enough evidence to arrest Whitey. Once Connolly left, Bulger's relationship with the FBI was, was done. More people were talking, so his world started tumbling or crashing down around the, the mid-90s. Connolly has one more favor for his friend, Whitey Bulger, and he tips him off right before the feds can move in. Where's Jimmy? Yeah, here. you got to tell him something for me, okay? It's important. John was so compromised at that point. When anybody threatened Whitey Bulger, his organization, it caused John to step up and try to prevent that from happening. But Connolly's attempts are eventually thwarted. Steve the Rifleman Flemmy and John the Executioner Martirano are arrested on charges of racketeering and extortion in 1995. Their boss, Whitey Bulger, is nowhere to be found. He has fled Boston. Whitey was probably one of the most prepared gangsters I know of. He has cash, jewelry, and documents for another life, all stashed away in safety deposit boxes around the U.S. and Europe. On the lam for 16 years, Whitey Bulger earns a spot on the FBI's most wanted list, second only to Osama bin Laden. I'm here to tell you we're out to get him. Where's Whitey Bulger? I thought he had to be dead. He was somehow dead and he was buried under the bridges along with the other victims. Bulger and his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, take on aliases and travel the country before settling down in Santa Monica. Their new residence is only a few blocks from the beach. 
They end up living in this sweet rent-controlled apartment, and it's just four miles away from the FBI office in L.A. In 2011, a neighbor recognizes them and calls the FBI after seeing a story on CNN. Agents surround Whitey's residence and arrest him without incident. The FBI finds $800,000 in cash, 30 firearms, and a number of fake IDs inside Whitey's apartment. After more than 16 years on the lam, one of the FBI's most dangerous and wanted fugitives is finally captured at the age of 81. And we had the trial of the century. There was nothing like the Whitey Bulger trial. You had helicopters and news media throughout the street for the whole summer. Whitey Bulger is charged with extortion, money laundering, obstruction of justice, weapons and drug charges, and 19 counts of murder. People always ask, how many murders did Whitey commit? It was almost irrelevant in his world. How many murders did people think he committed? There are some people in South Boston that think he killed hundreds. Bulger pleads not guilty, believing he has immunity from the FBI. But there is no paper trail to prove it. Whitey, to this day, claims that he is not a rat. But when you sit there at the trial and you see how thick that informant file was, you know, it's really hard to believe that Whitey wasn't a rat. Prosecutors have no trouble indicting Whitey Bulger with racketeering and murder charges because everybody close to him flipped on him. Fleming, Weeks, Martirano, they all turned on him. The reason they testified is they have an old saying in the criminal underworld. You can't rat on a rat. Probably the most difficult aspect of the case was Monterano coming in and wanting to make a deal with us. Prosecutors will rationalize it, saying we needed him to solve the murders. But to see him out on the street, it's, it's painful. If we didn't go into the deal with Monterano, those murders wouldn't have been solved, the bodies wouldn't have been recovered, and Bulger and Flummy would have been probably back out on the street again. It's not just the wise guys who are taking the deals. FBI supervisor John Morris takes a plea deal and offers up information on Agent John Connolly. Bulger's younger brother, William, now the president of the University of Massachusetts, testifies to Congress. His brother was the most powerful politician in Massachusetts, and he was the most powerful gangster in Boston at a time. That the Senate president could have no knowledge of what his brother did, when in fact he had a view of everything going on in the state, It was such an abominable performance. It was such an embarrassment that the governor called on him to resign. Both Whitey Bulger and his FBI handler, John Connolly, received lengthy prison sentences. But questions still remain. Over the decades, Whitey presumably racked up millions of dollars that he never spent, and only a fraction of it has been recovered. Where did all the money go? That's the big question. That's what everybody wants to know. It hasn't surfaced yet, but yeah, millions and millions of dollars. Again, I'd like to know. So would the victims. More importantly, how could a government agency such as the FBI turn a blind eye to Bulger's crimes? What happened to the other agents who knew about Whitey Bulger and John Connolly? And how many helped them? They protected Whitey Bulger. They allowed him to murder with impunity. And they allowed Bulger to divide and conquer the law enforcement community here 
in Boston and greater Massachusetts. That's horrible. The idea that the FBI would be co-opted by him. The actions of Whitey Bulger and those who enabled him have left a legacy that won't soon be forgotten. We're going to be talking about Bulger 90 years from now. It doesn't go away because it involves some primal things. Betrayal, corruption of sordid decisions in which our government decided who would die and who would live and who to favor and what was an act of rampant lawlessness. That concludes this episode of Murder Made Me Famous. Don't forget to go to Reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, for clips, extras, and more. And don't forget to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts.